Hello everyone, my name is Ravi Kumar, President at Infosys. Welcome to the next version of uh, Trailblazers. Uh, today I have a guest uh, with me on this chapter, uh, Mukul Pandya, the Chair of the Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, Mukul drives Knowledge at Wharton, which is kind of uh, similar to what we see with the Harvard Business Review, the Sloan Business Review, but very different in many ways because it's an online version uh, started in 1999, um, ideated, conceptualized, and actually executed by Bukul himself. Since then, he's been very passionate about Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, knowledge at Wharton is, uh, in many ways, a democratized version of uh, taking knowledge to enterprises in a, in a, in a very federated, democratic, democratic way. Uh, it's uh, free, and, uh, it's, uh, and that's why it's very different, because it's freely available to anybody who subscribes to it. 3 million uh, subscribers for Knowledge at Wharton. It curates knowledge from different aspects of the Wharton ecosystem, but it also has external uh, touch points where it kind of, uh, you know, uh, kind of consolidates knowledge from different aspects of uh, the value chain and um, allows it to thrive with, um, with its subscribers. Um, they have a very interesting version called Knowledge at Wharton for High Schools, uh, which kind of gives them an extended reach into high schools. Uh, we'll talk about it. Thank you, Mukul, for coming here. Uh, we have a beautiful backdrop of uh, uh, Manhattan actually just cleared up as we started this conversation. Thank uh, you. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you. Very and much. Mukul, you know, I was so fascinated by the fact that you almost started this in 1999 when the knowledge economy itself was not born in, in many ways. Uh, we are living in a knowledge economy. Uh, every large enterprise wants to be a knowledge enterprise. And uh, what best than talk about knowledge at Wharton and the culture which large enterprises have to inculcate to be a knowledge enterprise. Tell us a little bit about what you think is the culture of uh, uh, being a knowledge enterprise. Sure. So first of all, let me thank you, Ravi, very much for, for the honor of being here. Uh, as you said, Knowledge at Wharton was launched in 1999. Uh, so this happens to be our 20th anniversary, and, and, and uh, it's such, uh, it was celebrated in May. Congratulations and, on that. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And it's such, such, such an honor uh, you know, to, to be here talking to you about it. The one thing I would just clarify is that it was my idea for about five minutes. Uh, and after that, there was a whole team of colleagues uh, and, and very, very, very bright people, uh, both on the faculty as well as uh, on the Knowledge at Wharton team and around the Wharton ecosystem, who really have made it what it is. Right. So, so it's really a collective effort rather than anything else. So, so uh, great question about what really drives Knowledge at Wharton and uh, and, and some of the cultural uh, aspects of it. And I was, as I was thinking about what you were asking. I realized that we never set out to think about, okay, if this is what we want to do, this right. is what the kind of culture we need. We were trying to solve a very uh, simple question, which is not unique to Wharton. I think every business school faces it, and to some degree, every academic institution faces it. And that is, every business school is an engine for knowledge, knowledge creation. Uh, at Wharton, for example, there are academic departments, there are research centers. <coughs> And there are more than about 240 faculty members uh, uh, at Wharton today. And they do research uh, because the career progression in academia is driven by research. And the output of this research is working papers that are highly specialized, written by professors for other professors, 
and, and meant to be published in academic journals of record. And, and this creates a very interesting paradox. It is that there is a whole lot of knowledge creation going on, and it's about business, right. but it's not available in a form that is usable by business people. And consumed by businesses. Yeah, it's, it's not available very easily to be consumable by businesses. And so, the, in effect, it's almost like having a gold mine of intellectual capital, but it's not being mined. And not only is it not being mined, it's also not being minted and circulated in a way that can generate value. And so the challenge we faced was how do you take this intellectual capital of this one of the top business schools in the world and share this knowledge with people who want to learn, especially the business community. Uh, and, and, and the way in which, uh, historically, other schools have done it is to print journals. Like they the started with the print journal really. and then went online. Correct. And you uh, went the other way around. And we, we were trying to figure out how can we create, do the opposite? How can we take, use the web as a knowledge creation engine and take this knowledge and share it for free with everyone who wants to learn? So the very first aspect that was required to do this was a, an insatiable hunger for knowledge. And, and I guess the other term for it would be curiosity. Where, where does knowledge reside in the school? It resides in the research papers that are being put out. It resides in uh, the, the, the books that faculty write. It resides in the conferences that are held. It resides in the visitors, the CEOs and business uh, government leaders who come to campus to speak to the students. But the most important source of knowledge that they have is the tacit knowledge that resides in the minds of the faculty. So if there is a major news development, even if they haven't articulated this knowledge in a, in a formal way, you can ask them, what does this new business development mean? And they will tell you. And, and the ability to capture and tap into all these different forms of knowledge is, is what basically drove knowledge at Wharton. So if I were to highlight the two or three things that were, or maybe four things that were critical to do this, one was curiosity, as I said. The second is a culture of collaboration because mm -hmm. it, would, it would only work if everybody in the institution sort of participated in this effort. The third is very important to my heart, which is giving it for free to everyone who wants to learn. And, and there is Almost an element of compassion. Yeah. And that, that requires a compassionate approach towards the world right. and, 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 and towards learners who, who will, may never have the chance to come to Wharton, but who can still learn from it. And the last feature I would say is, as you put this knowledge out, one of the most important, interesting things that happens is it's not just Wharton telling the world this is our expertise. It is the world telling Wharton this is what is relevant from all the things you, you publish. This is what matters to us. And having the humility to keep learning from our readers so these are, if you, so the four aspects of the culture, I would say, if you want That's an acronym. That's terrific, actually. It was three, three C's and an H. It's uh, curiosity, curiosity, collaboration, so, compassion, and humility. Absolutely. I think these four aspects uh, almost define a knowledge enterprise in the digital age. So very, very aptly uh, you've articulated it. These four things really form, form the pillars of how new age digitally native companies work. Curiosity is so important. In fact, I keep calling this uh, the age of problem finding versus problem solving. Exactly right. Uh, in exactly many ways. Right. Yep. Um, you know, I want to tee up uh, my second question about uh, how the web in many ways, and, and specifically knowledge at Wharton, which, which has been born online, um, has more bit-sized uh, information, and that's your starting point 
to arouse curiosity and then you go into details unlike the print version which goes into details first and then it kind of you know goes the other way around um, and the second aspect is the formats of consumption have changed significantly in fact i did notice that uh, knowledge at wharton ranks on the top top podcasts yes. you do a radio <laughs> uh, you do a radio program every day yeah. and uh, you've kind of changed the way consumption of knowledge is tell us a little bit about that sure so it it's been a very interesting period of evolution and you're exactly right that one of the most fascinating things because my background is print journalism and and so for me just writing long form articles was just what i was trained to do but on the web i realized that you have the ability to offer different uh, content at different levels of depth <coughs> to people uh, and and they can then self select whether it's relevant to them or not so and this was built into the original structure of knowledge at wharton where the top tier of knowledge at wharton so let's say if there was a professor who wrote an article or, or a research paper a highly sp specialized research paper on how companies use derivatives let's say in the finance department there's a professor who's done this uh at the top level we would just have a short paragraph summary uh with a catchy headline about what that research found uh if you were interested you could click on it and then you can read a article in plain english written by a business journalist not making an academic summary of that paper but trying to understand based on an interview the professor about why that research matters to a business uh, executive who may have just 5 minutes to focus on it so that that's sort of the translation of academies into plain english if you're interested in that even more uh, learning about that more deeply you can click on a on on a, on a button and you can open up a pdf of the entire research paper so you get the entire 200 pages full of footnotes equations etc and the fourth level of depth that you could go to is related web links for other research on that topic so what now in the world of print this is almost impossible to do but on the web it's just click 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 and four clicks and do you, you engage with this with this with the readers as well so that you can you could cross tabulate views and know about what the world uh, what the world is what the world is thinking about the topic versus what you're thinking about it like you said <laughs> Yeah, uh, is that a is that a I way mean, to for, for for me i mean you hit the nail on the head uh, because for me as a as a as a, as a journalist who came out of the print world this was one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of online journalism because in the print world you you can publish an article in a print magazine uh, and and the only feedback you have about whether an article was read or not is sort of the aggregate circulation numbers whether they're going up or not and so what happens over time is that the, re, the the editor's interest becomes a proxy for the reader's interest and there is a kind of arrogance that develops that oh if i'm interested the i the editor i'm interested in then obviously my readers will be interested and there's absolutely no way of testing that assumption but online if you publish something thinking this is going to be you know the top story of the seven that we published today or the five we published today this story is going to be number 1 you'll go, you're going to be Uh, proved right or wrong very precisely quickly and brutally you know and and this is what is, is fascinating because it's not so much what wharton telling the world this is what we know but the world telling wharton this is what's relevant of what we know and this has uh, 
uh, grown even more dramatically since we uh, started podcasts. So we acknowledge it when we launched podcasts back in 2006. And what kind of podcasts are these? Uh, so they were essentially of two two kinds. You you would be one of the first to do it if you've done it in 2006. Uh, uh, I, I I don't know. <laughs> uh, maybe within bus the business school world, we were probably among the first to do it. Uh, but it doesn't matter. The the the, the reason we did it was that uh, we thought there would be some value if we had, say, a CEO, uh, you know, on campus, for for somebody to actually not just read what the CEO said, but actually hear that person's voice. Uh, and, and, and hear the, even the emotional intonations because right. that can give you some, uh, it, it's a different way of learning. Right. Uh, the other thing we would do is we had uh, uh, somebody who would read every article. Uh, and, and, and so you had an audio version of every article available on the site. Uh, so that if somebody wanted to read Knowledge at Warden, they could do that. If they wanted to listen to it, they could do that too. Uh, this has gotten ramped up very dramatically about five years ago when Wharton s started a business radio channel on Sirius XM, uh, channel 132, called Business Radio Powered by the Wharton School. And the Knowledge at Wharton team produces 25% of the content for that channel. We have a daily radio show called Knowledge at Wharton Radio in which we talk to four, you know, 30 to 40 business experts every week on, on topics relating to current business issues. Mm. Uh, we talk to book authors about new books that have come out. Uh, and, and all these are then repurposed. Many of these are repurposed into podcasts and distributed globally. So, so uh, in some ways, this is the golden age for people who want to learn. Absolutely. And, 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 and it's very, very uh, interesting to see how this whole uh, aspect has evolved. In fact, you know, just teeing up on my next question, which is uh, related to what you just said. Um, you know, we're also getting into this age of lifelong learning. Yeah. And uh, what fascinated me as I was talking to you is about knowledge at Wharton for high schools. Yeah. Uh, my personal belief is in the digital age, schools, K-12 schools, have to be focused around teaching you how to learn or learn to learn and learn to unlearn. And the rest of your life, you, uh, you learn because you're a lifelong learner. And the K-12 schools have enabled you to be a lifelong learner. Uh, the fact that you're, you're engaged with these high schools and you're doing summer camps with them and uh, exposing them to the knowledge uh, ecosystem of Wharton just fascinated me about how uh, that's so much forward thinking about where the world is going. Yeah, well, again, I, I wish I could take credit for the idea, but it was not my idea. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, uh, to give you a little backstory of how the high school idea came about, it was our fifth anniversary. We had just launched Knowledge at Wharton in Spanish in 2003 in Madrid. And we were working on launching Knowledge at Wharton in Chinese in Shanghai in March of 2005. So you have Spanish, Chinese? Uh... Uh, Spanish, Chinese, Portuguese, uh, and English. Uh, we also briefly had an Arabic version and an Israeli version. But all these have now been consolidated into a single global site. Uh, but, but in those days, I was sort of, um, you know, riding high, I had all these visions of world conquest and which new countries and which new languages shall we go to next. And we have an advisory board and, and one of our corporate partners from GE Capital was listening to me very quietly, you know, Terry Suppers from GE Capital. And, and I, asked, I was asking, where do you think we should go next and which new languages and which new land shall we conquer? 
And he said very quietly, uh, why are you thinking about growth only in terms of new countries and new languages? Have you ever thought of doing knowledge at Wharton for high school students? And when I heard that, it just touched my heart because I felt if we can introduce children at a young age to the basics of financial literacy, uh, to how to think like an entrepreneur, develop their leadership capabilities, uh, we could do something really good for the world. Uh, it took a certain amount of time to get the resources to do it. We were on the verge of launching the high school version in 2009, <coughs> but then the as you remember, the financial crisis of 2008 came along and we lost all our funding. Uh, we did not give up on the idea. We launched it in, in March of 2011. And Knowledge at Wharton High School has just grown unbelievably in the last uh, you know, eight years. Uh, as you mentioned, we have a portal that reaches about a quarter million high school te teachers and high school students. We have an investment competition, uh, a stock uh, which is very unique. And in fact, I'm very grateful to Infosys for you know, supporting this competition by hosting our regional finals in India in at your Bangalore yeah. facility. I remember that, yeah. Right. Uh, so so there's a, there are competitions. There is, we have also done teacher <coughs> training programs uh, with one and of our And you do summer camps partners. as well, right? And we do summer camps. We started with 30 students uh, a few years ago. And then last year we had close to 300 students, so it's grown dramatically. In fact, the whole high school program has grown so dramatically that I can't manage it as a part-time job anymore. So the whole high school program is moving out of knowledge at Wharton starting July 1st and will be part of the Wharton Global Initiatives under its own executive director. And I'm just so grateful that, that, that we were able to curate uh, or, or to lay the foundations for this program uh, and, and, and make it into something big that is now you know, ready to fly on its own. Uh, so this is just one aspect of lifelong learning, but you know, uh, your what else do you think is, uh, well, is my, important for lifelong learning? Yeah, one of my colleagues at Wharton, Adam Grant, uh, says that in the past, competitive advantage was determined by how much you knew. And today, competitive advantage is determined by how much you know how to learn. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, I think that if you go back to the basic idea of remaining curious, you know, it's very similar to what Satya Nadella often says that, right. you know, don't be a know-it-all, be a learn-it-all. Learn-it-all enterprise. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, and, and, and this is pretty much the idea of lifelong. So you might start in high school, you might continue through college, you might do it while you're in, in, in your professional services, but, you know, you, 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 you never really stop learning. And the way in which the world is going with so many changes right. with technology and all that, this mindset is going to be very critical to having a fulfilling life and a fulfilling career. You know, I had one last question. I don't want to put you on a spot, but... Um, <laughs> no, put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I want to ask you, how, how can the 230,000 employees, we roughly have 230,000 employees at Infosys, benefit out of knowledge at Wharton? We have a platform called Lex. It's a learning platform. Literally every employee at Infosys is subscribed to it. Uh, I'll be delighted to know if we could, uh, you know, weave it into, into that uh, framework. Uh, every employee at Infosys has it on our app. We have uh, the Infosys Knowledge Institute, which in a small way we started six months ago with the same uh, you know, aspiration of making this a democratized uh, knowledge enterprise. Uh, tell us a little bit about how we could partner on that. Well, uh, what you're asking is music to my ears, Ravi, because 
the whole purpose of knowledge at Wharton is to share knowledge for free with everyone who wants to learn. Uh, and if you would like uh, us to work with you and your team to get knowledge at Wharton onto Lex, or if you just want to send me a spreadsheet of the 230,000 email addresses, I will sign them up next week. <laughs> and, and they will start receiving articles on uh, topics like AI, topics like uh, you know some of the most popular articles this week are on, on why you need a people-oriented uh, focus on AI. Uh, there's an article on how you can use conflict in a healthy way to improve the performance of a team. Uh, there are articles on all kinds of topics that people can learn from. Uh, and I could just tell you one small story about why this matters so much. Uh, not just for Infosys, but everybody who wants to learn. It was the first birthday of Knowledge at Wharton. It was May of 2000. And uh, we had about 33,000 users at that point. And so in the email blast that we send out whenever a new edition is published, I had a small note to readers in which I said thank you to everyone who has learned from Knowledge at Wharton and given us an opportunity to serve them. And in response to that, I got an e-card. Uh, it was not signed, so I don't know who that came from. But it had an African mask on the on the front cover, so I, I think it was someone someone from Africa who had sent it to me. And inside there was just a single sentence. It said, "Thank you for the opportunity to learn." And that sentence I have carried in my heart for all these years because this is why knowledge at Wharton exists. There are so many people in the world who who, who need to learn but who don't have the ability to do that. And if we can take knowledge from one of the top institutions and share it with them, and they can use it to transform their lives, uh, that's, that's what we are all about. Uh, and, and so it would be an honor to work with you to see how we can help uh, everyone at Infosys to keep learning from knowledge at Wharton. So Mukul, thank you so much uh, for that uh, offer. We will. Uh certainly get get our teams to work with you and hopefully we could launch it with an emphasis pretty soon thank, uh, you. thank you for passionately working on knowledge and learning uh, and making this a democratized purpose um, you know uh, I, i'm so excited about uh, what you're doing and uh, thank you thank you for actually making this such a noble cause well, th thank you for the opportunity to, to to talk about it and I, I can go on talking for hours but I, I know we are probably running out of time sure <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much for listening to this chapter of uh, uh, trailblazers uh, look forward to the next one thank you mukul for participating in this one from our new york office Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.